Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. God, we worship you here this morning. We're so thankful for the opportunity that we have each and every time we sit in worship. Because God, every single week we're seeing in the news, we're seeing in conversations with friends and family and loved ones, that this world is broken. This week alone we've talked about war and missiles and plane crashes and disease and epidemic and this is becoming just a normal week in January because we can see that the depth of the depravity of this world only seems to grow so God we cry out today for you to intervene in the pain of this world that when there's talk of war and rumors of wars, that we would know that there is one who brings a peace that passes all understanding. God, when we pray for our congregation, there are people every single week who are struggling with chronic pain, with cancer, with sickness, with unexplained symptoms. We lift those people up to the great physician, asking that you would heal, you would minister. God, as we Lift up those who have broken marriages, those who have estrangements with their children or with their parents, that that would be laid on the altar and given to you, which has restored all brokenness. Because God, these are burdens that are too heavy for us to bear. If we ourselves have to figure out how to stop wars, we will fall short. If we ourselves try to cure cancer, it will never happen. But we pray that your spirit will step into these moments, into this time, into this place, and act in the way that only you can to set this world right. And God, we don't pray that we would sit back passively and watch you go. But our prayer, God, is that you would pull us into your mission and that as you are empowering us and teaching us and training us, that we can bring the salt and light into the world that it so desperately needs because you taught it to us and we bring it to others. And so as we look now to the study of your word, as we focus on the gospel of Mark, we're looking at the actual words that were said by the Son of God. I pray that you find our hearts and our minds to be eager, anxious, receptive, looking forward to that word that you have for us today. As Trevor teaches, I pray that your spirit would fill him, that he would speak with an articulation that is not his own, but that these are your words for us here today. We look forward to this time. We lean into your scripture. We ask for your correction, and we grow, and we live. We pray this in Jesus' name.
so you, uh, you might already know this, but there's a, a significant difference between an addition and a renovation. And I, I say this because I spent several years working for an architecture firm upstate before I became a pastor. And in this, it was a small firm. We mostly did residential stuff. And a lot of what we did was additions and renovations. And I say additions and renovations because they're, they're very different things. And people would come in and they'd say, you know, I want to put an addition on my house. Like my house as it is, is fine. And I, I want to, you know, pop this out or I want to bump this up or I want to tack this on. And whenever I would hear this, I would... I would cringe a little bit on the inside. I wouldn't show this because, uh, you know, as a, a design professional, they, I mean, they thought their house was fine the way it was. I probably had a different opinion about the situation. Uh, and, uh, of course, what happens when you just kind of take a house and you put an addition on is you, you kind of get these, these, like, tumors coming off of houses. They're, they're like these, yeah, awful little, like, they're goiters. That's what I like to call them, goiter additions. Uh, yeah, and you, you know, you're just like, oh, I just wanna, I want the extra space. This one's really, I like this one. Just like, boop, <laughs> hey guys. Just the house is waving to you. Uh, but when, when you just kind of like add an addition on like that, it, it's a little unnatural and it feels a little awkward. And, uh, and if you, you take the time and you're willing to kind of put in the extra effort, you can put an addition on your house and make it still look like a cohesive house, but it requires renovation to happen to the original house along the way. This is, uh, you know, this is an example of a renovation. By the way, none of these houses uh, did I have anything to do with on either end of the spectrum. Uh, but, you know, this is an, they wanted to put an addition on, but they also, like, renovated the, the existing house, and look how cute it came out. Or the, here's another one. I think this was actually a fixer-upper house, like Chip and Joanna. Yeah, yeah, you've seen that episode. Uh, here's another one. You know, put a nice porch on the front, and you renovate it, and it looks like this beautiful home in the end. And if we're willing to do that extra work of renovation along the way, it turns into something beautiful. Uh, now, the, the problem, and it's, it's the worst part about being a designer. I know we have some designers in the room, some like interior designers, some architects, even some builders. I was talking to some builders earlier this morning. They experience it the same way, some like video and graphic design people. Anybody who works in the design field, you'd know the worst part about being a designer is the client <laughs> because they end up getting their way in the end. And uh, I mean, obviously we need the client. So yes, they get to their way in the end. And as a result, I've designed many a goiter in my <laughs> tenure as a, an architectural designer. And uh, th by the way, this has nothing to do with the message. This is just like a public service announcement. No, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but of course, with regards to a house, who cares? It's, it's a house. It's not going to last forever. It's not that big of a deal. Do whatever you want with the house. But when it comes to your soul, that's a big deal. That's something that is going to last forever. It has eternal consequences. And it's very tempting as followers of Christ to come to Jesus and, and want to put an addition on our lives. We say, you know, oh, I want to add a little peace to what is a, a hectic life. Or maybe I want to add a, a little more purpose and significance to a life that might seem meaningless otherwise. Or maybe you want to add a little goodness and morality to a life that, if you're honest about it, has its ups and downs morally over the years. Maybe you just want some fire insurance. You want to add some fire insurance, cover your bases so that, you know, if you die today, you end up in the good place. Uh, and we come to Jesus and we just kind of want to make an addition. But what we find in scripture is that Jesus isn't really just looking to, to be an addition on your life. Jesus is actually looking to do a full-scale renovation in your heart. 
And we're in the second week of a series that we're calling On the Move, and we're diving into the Gospel of Mark to study the life of Jesus. And we want to we watch him. We want to see the things that he says, the things he commands of us, the, the places that he goes, the ways that he goes there. Because as we're on the, the go in our lives, as we're on the move and we're transitioning into a new year and a new decade, as a church, we're transitioning into a new space right now. There's a lot of movement in our lives, and we want to make sure that every step we take, that we can authentically and genuinely say, I am following Jesus, that my life reflects his. And uh, today, as we continue in this series, we want to look at the, the kind of renovation that Jesus is looking to do in our lives. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. As you're opening up there, uh, just a, a little bit of a recap from last week. If you weren't here last week uh, as we kicked off the series, I encourage you to go back and catch that message on the, the stream or the podcast because in there we talked about the, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he lays out for us who Jesus is, really pointing out the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God himself. And that along the way, Jesus might call us into a lot of crazy things, but Mark wants us to know as followers of Jesus that the full power of God, the full creative power of God is with us as we go, as we follow Jesus into this world. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because as we look into what it is to be renovated by Jesus and this, this deep heart renovation that he's looking to do in us, it's going to require his supernatural power. And if we forget who it is that's going with us, we can kind of get tripped up in all of this. So keep that in the back of your mind as we look at these verses this morning. In John 14, uh, 1.14, or sorry, Mark 1.14 says, After John, that's John the Baptist, we talked a lot about him last week, John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee. Galilee is just a, a region in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here's that, that word good news again. It's uh, that, that word gospel. And if you remember, the, the, this is called the gospel of Mark because the first line of this whole thing, it says the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's talking about this, this gospel that comes from God about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus came proclaiming this good news and he says, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then Mark gives us a, a couple of kind of case studies of this playing out. He says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, uh, Simon also called Peter or Simon Peter, Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. As we look at this passage, and you kind of keep that open because we're going to be referencing back to it, but as we look at this passage, we see the kind of renovation that Jesus is looking to do in our lives, and, and we actually we see why it is that we need renovation, and not just adding Jesus as an addition to our lives, but we also get a glimpse of the extent of the renovation that he's looking to do in our lives. And I, I want to start with this idea of why do we actually need renovation? Jesus comes on the scene and he, he says that the time is now, like the time has come, like get ready, here it is, ready? The time is here. And he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, this is good news and this is bad news. 
because it's good news because the kingdom of God has come near. Like, that's great. Kingdom of God here, awesome. The bad news about this statement is that the kingdom of God was not already here. <laughs> and that's, that's a darker uh, piece of the story that kind of goes unspoken in what Jesus is saying, but it's very real. And now, of course, the Bible teaches God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. It also teaches that he is omnipotent and fully sovereign. He's all powerful, like he's in control of everything. But the Bible also paints this picture that God gave the, the earth, the world itself, over to the dominion of darkness, that it hasn't been his kingdom. He hasn't been ruling here. He's kind of let it rule itself in response to our disobedience and our rebellion against him. And that we, we haven't been living our whole lives in the kingdom of God. We've been living in the ungodly kingdom. And this ungodly kingdom isn't just the, the world that we find ourselves in now. This is like the only world that we've ever known. We grew up in this world. And you guys know that this is an ungodly world because you've watched the news or you've read a report and you, you see, I mean, every week there's crazy stuff that's happening. Like we, we can see that this is an ungodly world. But we've been immersed in this ungodly kingdom from birth. Like it's, it's all we know. None of us grew up in the kingdom of God. Like some of us might have had a better view of the kingdom from where we were sitting, but none of us had grown up in the kingdom of God. We grew up in this ungodly kingdom and it's the air that we breathe. Imagine for a moment that the year is 1825 and you are living in like the deep south, like Georgia or something like that, all right? Uh, now, uh, half of you are probably really nervous because you're like, I don't know if this shade was really accepted in the deep south in 1825. So for this little mental exercise, imagine you're also white, all right? So you're a white man or woman, and you're growing up in Georgia in 1825, and your parents are slave owners. Turns out your grandparents also owned slaves. Your neighbor to the right, also owns slaves. Your neighbor to the left, also owns slaves. Your school teacher, also owns slaves. Your politicians, also own slaves. And everybody you know has slaves and thinks nothing of it. Now, imagine you're growing up in this scenario. Do you think, do you think you would realize and recognize the evil of slavery if this was the world that you grew up in? Probably not because we can't see what we can't see. Now, thankfully, that's not the, the world that we grew up in. We didn't grow up in 19th century, deep south slavery culture. However, the same ungodly kingdom that produced slavery a couple hundred years ago is the same ungodly kingdom that we have spent our whole lives in. It's the only world that we've ever known and we've been breathing in that air, and we can't see what we can't see. And, and you guys know, you do know that the time is going to come. Like, our grandchildren, there's going to be a day where they look back at us and our generation, they're going to be like, I cannot believe that they did that. How could they not see how, like, evil that was? And they just thought it was normal. Like, we, we already experienced this a little bit with, like, the Me Too movement. Like, we only go back a couple of decades, and we're like, how in the world could we think that was okay? Like, that is not good. And you see this, but, but you can't see it when you're in it. Because it's just, it's normal. And this is the ungodly kingdom that you and I, we've all grown up in. And so there, there are pieces of this evil that pervade every aspect of our lives because everything that we've built, everything that we've shaped has been done in the context of this ungodly kingdom. And sure, there's bright shining moments in there, but even the, the brightest spots, they're still tainted a little bit with the kingdom of this world. 
And so Jesus comes in, he says, no, there's a new kingdom coming. This is a, a brand new paradigm. And a new kingdom calls for a new you. Dallas Willard, he says, the old mind holds before it a certain picture of reality. So the old mind, the mind that grew up in the kingdom of this world, holds a certain picture of reality. And the newer, the renewed mind goes with transformation into conformity with God's will. He says they're talking about an alternative reality. The world on the one hand and the kingdom of God on the other, they have different views of the things that matter most. Jesus is announcing this coming kingdom, but it's foreign to us. Because we've grown up in this ungodly kingdom and this is a, a completely new reality. Imagine if you, you bought a house and you, you started to you know, do some, some work on it and you found out that underneath some of the walls there was this rot eating away the two by fours. Start pulling it back and you realize it, it's in a lot of different areas. And it, you know, maybe it's not in this area, but it is in you know, this area and this area. What are you going to do? You're going to rip the sheetrock off of the whole house because you're going to find out where the rot is and the rot isn't. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. He says, you know, there's this new kingdom that's coming in, but you guys have been living in this old kingdom. And that means everything, everything about you has the possibility of being tainted by the kingdom of this world. And so what we need is not just an addition, not just a little Jesus sprinkled on top. What we need is a full-scale renovation of our hearts. As we look at this passage, we get to see that this renovation that Jesus wants to do in our hearts, it is deeper and it is broader. Deeper and broader. It's deeper than what? Exactly. Think about how deep you can take it and it's deeper. <laughs> how broad is it? Go as broadly as you can think and it goes broader. It is deeper and it is broader than we can imagine. And it starts, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. And the, the first thing he says is repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Notice how he doesn't just say believe. Like a lot of times you say believe in Jesus. That's all you need to do. And that's not what Jesus says. Because there's a kind of belief in Jesus that is merely addition. And, and you've, you've seen this. You've recognized this. Like there are people out in the world that say, uh, you know, their, their lives in no way reflect Jesus at all. They just kind of do whatever they want in, in the same way that everybody else does it. But then they kind of tack on a little bit of faith in Jesus. They have a couple of beliefs about Jesus and they call themselves Christians. And that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about just adding a couple of beliefs about him. He's saying, no, 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 there's this repentance that needs to happen in accordance with our belief. And it's this word repentance I want to home in on because it, I think we can get confused about it a little bit. So uh, sometimes we, we equate repentance with confession. That, like when we're confessing our sins, we're repenting. And confession of sin is definitely a part of repentance, but repentance goes deeper. Uh, other times we equate repentance with the remorse that we feel for our sin. Like we feel really, really badly about things that we've done. We call that repentance. And that's a part of repentance, but repentance still goes deeper. Uh, another way that we confuse repentance is we equate it with this idea of uh, turning away from sin. So we say like, oh, this is the sin that I was doing and I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from it, which is definitely part of repentance, but it's not the fullness. Repentance goes even deeper than that. And the, the word used in the original Greek language that Mark was writing in that he uses, uh, metanoeo. Can you say metanoeo? 
It's very impressive. You guys uh, are all Greek scholars. Uh, metanoeo, and this word, it carries with it, this, it does carry with it this connotation of kind of like turning away. As if you're like you're walking in one direction, you kind of do an about face and you just start m- marching in the other direction. It's a complete turnaround. But it, it's not just about behavior. It actually speaks to what's going on in your mind. This, uh, this word noeto comes from gnosis, the way we know things and think about things. And it's actually doing this about face in our minds, not just with how we think about things, but even how we feel about things. And I, I think the best explanation of repentance and belief that I've come across is actually from the, the apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. This is how he, he describes it. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. All right, so this is our former way of life. He says, Put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires in the, the ungodly kingdom of this world, all right? Put off that old self. It says, be new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And there's kind of three steps here, right? And on either end, you have this putting off the old self, and you have putting on the new self, but right in the middle, you get this interesting phrase. He says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. And this gets us to the heart of repentance. It says, being made new in the attitude of your minds. And notice he uses the word attitude, all right? Not just the way you think about things, but even the way you feel about things. So for instance, imagine you, you struggle with lying. You know that lying has no part in the kingdom of God. So you say, I'm going to put off this old self and I'm going to stop lying. And I'm going to put on the new self and I'm going to start telling the truth. But in the middle, there is this, this other thing that's going on here that Paul is talking about. It's being made new in the attitude of your mind where it's actually, you you start to look at lying and you feel differently about it. You actually, you start to hate lying. You hate lies. They, They repulse you and you start to love the truth. You start to see it as being this precious treasure that you want to preserve and you want to fight for and you actually feel differently about it. This is the, the being made new in the attitude of your mind that he's talking about. I, uh, I wanted to share with you a, a kind of personal story of how I experienced it, and it, it is personal, uh, and sorry if it's TMI, but uh, when, I, when I was 11 years old, uh, I was introduced to internet pornography for the first time at 11, which is young, uh, and I know that's not a good thing. Uh, I'm in the future also, uh, but I, I quickly became hooked uh, on it, and it was the 90s, so there was no such thing as like parental blocks or anything like that. Parents didn't even need to, like know to look like look for it, so there really were no hurdles between it and me, unless somebody else was using the landline uh, and the 30 minutes that it took to load a page back then of dial-up. Uh, so uh, I just, as much as I wanted to kind of embed myself in it, I was able to, and and I did, and uh, I really struggled with it for for a few years. And with that came all sorts of guilt and shame and hiding. And I I knew, I sensed in my soul that this is not what God wanted for for me or from me. And and I would try to put it off and I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. And as I I started to get older uh, and mature as a teenager and maturing in my faith, especially, I, I got to this day where I said, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I know this is dishonoring to God. I have to stop. And, and I kind of made this decision by sheer force of will. I just kind of put off the old self. And it worked-ish, you know, like every so often I'd slip back into it and it felt like I was starting over again. And I would try to find loopholes and, and I would push on and I'd push and I hobbled along like that for a long time. And even throughout all of it, uh, like I would use these kind of worldly arguments to say like, oh, but if I 
you know, stop looking at this stuff. I'll have better sex when I get married, which isn't biblical and like has nothing to do with the gospel, but comes from somewhere. I don't know. Uh, and so I would tell myself these things and wasn't very effective. And, and I, I would just keep pushing along like this. And uh, over, over time, I just thought, well, this is my new reality. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to fight this thing that is plaguing me. And yes, I know God doesn't like, like it. And so I'm going to keep pushing it off and whatever. But also, like if at any moment God was like, oh, I changed my mind. It's not a big deal. I would have jumped right back into it. Like, because in my soul, it craved these things and I was just kind of fighting with this. But then something happened. As I continued to uh, immerse myself in Christian community and continue to immerse myself in God's word and continue to spend time in prayer and in these other spiritual disciplines, God's word started to, to actually do this work on my heart and I started to see my sexuality and marriage through the lens of the gospel in, in a completely different way. And all of a sudden I started to see that like marriage and sexuality, it actually it, it was given to us by God as a reflection to show us how Jesus relates to his church and that Jesus loves purity so much and, and he was so passionate about purity that not only was he himself pure, but he gave himself up to purify his bride, to make us pure, that he actually sacrificed his life for that purity. And I began to understand that when I am pure, when I put these things away, that I actually have this opportunity to tell the gospel, display the gospel in my flesh. And all of a sudden, th this purity thing that was like this burden for me to bear became this, this opportunity. It was like this joyous thing. It's like, yes, I love this. I want to do this. And then and all those, those little moments where it would kind of, you know, get fractured and these other temptations would come in and it was like, oh, I really want, those were no longer appealing anymore because I saw them as, as not just an infraction to my purity, but uh, an offense to the gospel. And, and over the years, they actually, the attitude of my mind about these things has changed. And things that once enticed me, now sometimes they even disgust me. At the very least, they often sadden me. And this isn't a work that I did, but it's a work that God was able to do with me. It's a deep, renovating work in the soul that Jesus was able to do about an issue that I never, I mean, you, if you asked me 15, 20 years ago, I just never thought this was possible. But this is the kind of deep renovating work that Jesus wants to do in our souls. And now, I'll be honest, like I'm still in this work of renovating. Like this is one area in my life where Jesus has done this. And th there's been a, a number of areas like this, but I'm still a work in progress. And there's still areas in my life that I need to experience this deep renovating work in my soul. And I'm seeking God through scripture to do this. But I mean, we're all in this, uh, this journey of repentance together. In fact, Martin Luther, you may be familiar with Martin Luther, he kind of started the Protestant Reformation. And it started with these 95 theses. The very first of the 95 theses, he said this, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Remember, Mark is saying this not to a group of unbelievers that need to repent. He's saying this to Christians saying, guys, we need to repent to do this deep, deep spiritual work where we're putting off the old self, putting on the new self and being made new in the attitude of our minds with regards to all of these different things. It's a deep spiritual work. But here's the, here's the catch. In order for the deep work to happen, this work also has to expand more broadly. Uh, if you've ever, as a kid, you ever go down to the beach and try to dig a hole at the beach? If you want to go deep in, in digging a hole in the sand, what do you have to do simultaneously? 
you have to go wide, right? The deeper you go, the wider the hole has to be. If you try to go deep with a narrow hole, it's just going to cave in on itself. In order to go deep, you have to go wide simultaneously. And the same is true. If we want to experience this deep renovation of the soul in some of these, these acute areas, we also have to let this, this renovating work apply more broadly. And we see this in the, the case studies that Mark shows us here. There's two, right? He, you see Jesus walking along, and you see Simon and Andrew, and he calls them, come, follow me. And it says they, they leave their nets and they follow Jesus. So they actually, they walked away from their job and followed Jesus. And then you have John and James and Jesus sees them and he calls them, come, follow me. And it says they left their father behind, they left their families and they followed Jesus. And, and what we see is that this renovating work that Jesus is trying to do in our hearts, when I think about it, originally, my initial thought is he wants to root out the sin in my life, obviously. But you see, it applies much more broadly to that than that. He actually wants to shift the attitude of our mind in all areas of life, in everything. Here, it's applying to their work and their families and how they view work and family, that that actually needs to change in order for them to create the margin in their lives to follow Jesus, for him to do that deep spiritual work of the soul to really root out some of these sin issues. And I, I find it especially curious that the, the two things that he has them walk away from are work and family. Because interestingly enough, 2,000 years later, any ideas, any guesses on what the two biggest obstacles to people being available to uh, Jesus to do that deep spiritual work in their lives is? work and family. Uh, not a whole lot has changed. And obviously there are, are other things and this applies not just to work and family and sin. It applies to every area of life because every area of our lives has been immersed in the ungodly kingdom. So everything is tainted with the ungodly kingdom, which means everything is, needs to experience this of renovating work by Jesus. But if you think about, and I want you to think about this and honestly assess, when you think about how you interact with your, your job and what you sense your responsibility is and the habits that you form and the expectations that you have of yourself and others, do you, do you think those have been shaped more by the kingdom of this world or by the kingdom of heaven? Where, where do you find your pattern for these things? When it comes to family and the, the decisions that you make for your family and the practices that you adopt and the expectations and the things that you get involved in, is that shaped largely by Jesus and the kingdom of God or is it being shaped more by the kingdom of this world. Because what you see is that it's not that these are bad things. These are family work. God gave us these things. These are God-ordained. These are good things. But if they're tainted, even in the slightest way, by the kingdom of this world, it doesn't have to twist them and manipulate and turn them into something evil. But if he makes them enough, if it makes them enough to keep us preoccupied with these things, then we don't have the margin in our lives to do that deep spiritual work of renovation on these other sin issues in our lives. And we miss out on the transformation that Jesus is trying to do in each of us. So in order to do that deep work, we have to apply this more broadly. 
And I don't, I don't know what that looks like. like. I can't give you like a list of like, these are the five things of the kingdom of God and how you interact with your family. Like I can't give you that list. I can't do that with work either. And it's not gonna be the same for all of us. It's something that we have to be assessing and bringing before Jesus and seeing through the lens of the gospel and, and doing this work on. But here's one thing I can tell you about the kingdom of God, all right? And again, I'm not a master on the kingdom. I wish I was. I'm trying to get there. But one thing I can assure you about the kingdom of God is that in the kingdom of God, Jesus is first. Jesus is first. Jesus isn't important. Jesus is first. He is preeminent. He is above all things. And everything else takes a backseat to him. I love the way this one pastor put it. He says, a lot of things can be important, but only one thing can be first. And whatever is first in your life gets your best, while everything else gets good enough. I want to I challenge you. I want to encourage you to assess your life. What gets your best and what gets good enough? Does Jesus get your best? Is he, is he really getting your best? Or is work getting your best and Jesus is getting good enough? <clears throat> is, your, is Jesus getting your best or is family getting your best? And Jesus is getting good enough. It satisfies you. Now, don't get me wrong. When he says good enough, he really does mean good enough. He's not saying to like, take away from your family. He's not saying take away from your job, things that you need to be doing, but where are we getting these cues from? Is it coming from the kingdom of God or is it coming from the kingdom of this world? Because these little things, they add up and next thing you know, we go years, we go decades without any deep renovating work happening in our souls because we've been too busy following the pattern of this world. And I, I know the reason why this happens. And, and, Here's the thing. Jesus isn't going to force this on you. He's not going to like do this for you. In this scenario, you're the client. <laughs> you get to make the decision whether or not you want this work to be done in your life. And do you know the number one reason why clients would come in and they want to do an addition without doing the full-scale renovation? Any guesses? Money. Because <laughs> it's costly. Renovation is costly. There's no two ways about it. Following Jesus, doing this deep spiritual renovation that is, is both deep and broad, it's going to cost you. But here, here the, the, like hear this, don't miss this. It's costly, but every penny is going to be reimbursed. Every penny. You will lose nothing in the end. Imagine if I told you, you could do this massive rescale, you know, model or remodeling to your house, full scale, whatever you want. I'm going to reimburse you for every dime. Here's the only catch. You have to pay for it in advance and I'll reimburse you later. Would you do it? Depends whether or not you believe I'm going to reimburse you, right? Jesus said, I'm going to reimburse you. And this is what he says in Mark 10. He says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields or, uh, for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, uh, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus said, guys, you don't have, there, there's no risk here. It's going to be costly, but every penny is going to be reimbursed. My mentor, Dan, he grew up, and his father was pretty well off. He had this trucking company, and when Dan was uh, you know, a young adult, he had the opportunity of going into the family business and kind of doing all that and would have lived a nice, pretty well-off life, but he felt God calling him into ministry, and so he went, and he uh, ended up dis developing this discipleship center with his wife, and early on in ministry, he felt God kind of prompting him. He said, Dan, here's the deal. You can, you can give me 10%, you tithe 10%, or 
you can just give me everything. And if you give me everything, I'll make sure that you're never in need of anything. And he, he felt the Holy Spirit kind of prompting me in this. He said, all right, it's yours. For the last 50 years, he's lived on this model and God has been faithful to that promise to provide. And there are times where he didn't know where like the next meal was coming from, which is a big deal because he has nine kids. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Uh, and somebody would just like randomly show up with a check in that last moment, those final moments, be like, oh, you know, just God put this on my heart. Here's, you know, $10,000. Like, and this happened like numerous times in his life because God doesn't fall through on his promises. But there's this one story that he tells that really reminds me of that verse in Mark 10. He, uh, his family was invited out by this other very wealthy family and they're eating dinner together. And this uh, daughter of the wealthy family, young girl at the time, uh, didn't have a, a lot of uh, kind of tact. So she was kind of bragging about how much her family, you know, how rich she was and how much her family had. And she started uh, kind of going toe to toe with one of Dan's children at the time. And uh, she would be like, oh, you know, we have this, uh, this in-ground pool. It's huge. You, you, you should see the pool that we have. Now, Dan developed this discipleship center and it turned into a summer camp as well for kids. And his family lived there. It wasn't theirs, but that's where they lived. So as far as his daughter knew, she also had a pool and a river and like a swimming hole. And so she's like, oh, that's cool. We have a pool and a swimming hole. And this other little girl, she's like, oh, you should see this rec room that we have. It's giant. It's huge. It's like bigger than anything you've ever seen. She's like, oh, that's so cool. We have a rec room. We have a couple gymnasiums too. Yeah, I know. It's really cool. And uh, she goes on. She's like, oh, you, you should see our tennis court in the backyard. And she's like, oh, that's cool. We have a couple of tennis courts as well. And we have a soccer field and a uh, volleyball court. And, and she was just kind of like listing off the things that she had. And here, was this girl and she didn't even realize how poor she was <laughs> going you know head to head with this wealthy girl and eventually this wealthy girl kind of just stopped talking because she realized she couldn't one up the promises of God being delivered in this poor girl's life and I remember Dan was kind of overhearing this conversation and it just kind of reminded him of this passage where God's like look you might give up stuff but first of all you get eternal life second of all I love you and I like to spoil you, and I'm going to give you good gifts, and there's nothing that you're going to give up that you're going to regret giving up. And I have met people in the course of my life who at the end of their life, they regretted not giving more to their faith and not spending more time doing the things of the kingdom. I've never met anyone or even read about anyone who's given up for the kingdom of God who in the end said, oh man, that was a waste. <laughs> never. People who've given up everything and had these lives that I consider just unimaginable that have zero regrets. Because God is faithful to his promises. And if you want to see Jesus do that deep, renovating work in your soul, then you also have to be open to letting the, the renovating work apply broadly to all these other areas, which might mean changing how you think about things and giving things up, but it is worth it. And as we continue in this series, here's the one thing I want to ask. As we continue in this series in Mark, and we study the life of Jesus, I just want you to be open-minded and have an open heart to what you see Jesus doing and what you see him calling you to, and let it change the way you think, and maybe even change the way you live, and the decisions you make for you and your family and your job, and all these areas of life, letting them be reshaped by Jesus and his kingdom because I promise you, you won't regret it in the end. And you will get to see this deep, transforming, renovating work of Jesus take place in your soul.
I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as I do, I want to invite you to stand as well as uh, we take a moment to pray together and commit these things to God. Father, uh, we, uh, we are so grateful that despite the brokenness in our lives and the way that we've been tainted by this world and by sin and our own evil desires, you still, you have not given up on us and you still see someone who is worth redeeming, someone who is worth renovating from the inside out, that you, you want to do this work. You want to refine us and restore us and you see that there's beauty to be pulled out. And we thank you for that grace and that mercy. And we pray that we will have the faith and the courage to do what nobody else is willing to do. Do things that might seem odd or risky, but doing them because we trust you and we know where you're leading us. And we know that wherever you lead us is the best place we can go. We love you and we trust you with all these things in Jesus' name.